It is 18 hours 35 East African time. Time for John Sibi Okumu on Wednesday. Hamjambo na karibuni. Hello and welcome. First of all, I must say that I made a mistake in the last episode for which I would like to apologize. The correct version of Article 43 of our Constitution 2010 in the Bill of Rights actually begins, every person has the right to the highest attainable standard of health, which includes the right to health care services, including reproductive health care, health care, pardon me, to accessible and adequate housing and to reasonable standards of sanitation, to be free from hunger and to have adequate food of acceptable quality, to clean and safe water in adequate quantities, to social security and to education. Do forgive me for the misinformation in the last episode. And do continue to give us feedback, hopefully positive and reassuring, on the Twitter handle at Capital FM Kenya or drop us a text or WhatsApp message on 071-984-984. For this episode, I was put in mind of the words of an elected official who was welcoming a huge crowd to a comedy show in one of our cities. Let me quote from his exact words. Kenya is for each and every one of us, he said. Kenya is actually a democratic country where we can live anywhere, we can stay anywhere, and we can do business anywhere in Kenya. What I want to tell each Kenyan is, please, during the preparation for the elections, during the elections, and after the elections, peace is paramount. Let's observe peace Let's observe peace wherever we go. Well, a call for peace like that one would not be necessary unless there have been moments of unrest, upheaval, turmoil in the past. And there have been. Our guest, who will remain a mystery for three quarters of our conversation, is well placed to remind us of such defining moments in our history. But before that, let us hear responses from Wanainchi to the question. What is the worst moment in Kenya's history that you yourself have lived through? In Kiswahili, ni wakati gani mgumu zaidi uliopitia maishani mwako katika historia yetu ya Kenya? Well, 144.67, that is too much. If you go to supermarket, you go with a thousand shillings, you only buy one item. It is the worst moment. Kwa hivyo wakati ya corona tuliumia sana na hata mabiashara ingine ikafungwa. August 1982 ku touched me directly. Soldiers could walk into the house, order everybody out, you line out and lie on the ground. You don't know whether you are going to be alive the next minute. Um, I'd say the 2007 post-election violence. It was a really dark period. I was kind of young back then, but uh, getting basic commodities was a problem. We were locked up in our estate, couldn't go anywhere. It was a really, really trying time. I lost a few relatives. But you know the worst, because niliona nikikufa. Na hiyo ikanifanya kabisa politics na mimi. Na hiyo neyanga pale natoka mbio. Raila kakua na kuja kujiapisha pale urupaka. So zikakuwa na ile live bulletin kwa sababu tulikuwa na ile guns tulikuwa tunarusha mawe. So nilinusurika juri sasi ilipita kwa mkono yangu niliona kabisa mimi nikikufa. The Dosets terror attack actually I think I was one of the first people to know about it before it even broke out in the news. Tuko na shida nyingi sana sababu hata iko watu hapa wanalala na njaa kwa sababu 
hawana uwezo ya kupata chakula so this is the worst experience ever kwa sababu previously tumekuwa tukisafa juu ya bay but sasa hivi ni kwa sababu ya inavailability like unapata hakuna hakuna kazi vijana wetu hapa mitaani hii The defining moment in the Sinai fire was the negligence and the sheer loss of life for people who were living in the slums. So a lot of people died when they could have been saved. Madam, if I may, would you like to comment on what you have just heard? Thank you, John. I find it quite interesting that a lot of the people who were interviewed took a very personal view of this question for them a lot of the worst moments in their history were very close to home the hunger the suffering the lack of work the lack of money the fact that the um, the uh, cost of living is going up inflation and more recently the corona which affected lots of people but we've had a lot of terror attacks in this country which were, one lady mentioned the Dusit attack but we had Westgate we had the US embassy and in many people who are listening probably don't remember the attack on the Norfolk hotel at the new year of 19 i believe it was new year's eve 1980 or 81 i can't remember the exact date when people were enjoying themselves having a great time at the Norfolk hotel for their um new years and uh, an outsider a, a, a terrorist sent uh, put a bomb and let it off and that affected an awful lot of people i had a neighbor who was a nurse and she went into the hospital to help she volunteered to go in and she went into the hospital and helped and she said she had never seen such terrible burns So that is one of the things that I personally remember as a terrible incident in the history of Kenya. But many of our listeners may not remember that because they probably not as old as I am. Um the coup also in August 1982 my youngest son was a small baby and that was very scary. We were living in Lavington at the time and we tried not to go anywhere because we felt that if we did we would be leaving ourselves open to trouble. I used to live in Uganda when I was a girl and we had troubles in Uganda as you probably know uh, if you know the history of Uganda. And my mother said to me once she said you need to keep a low profile if these things happen because nobody wants to attack you. So in during the August 1982 coup we stayed at home we were fortunate in that we had plenty to eat in the house plenty of and we just didn't go anywhere we didn't go to work or anything for a few days but I know there were many many people who were very badly affected by the violence and the the lack of discipline among those who should have been known better Well it's interesting that one of the comments had to do with the the post election violence of 2007 and since the focus of this first series of programs is on the forthcoming elections again we hear that people live in a certain dread of a, a reliving of those awful years 
Would you like to comment on that? I most certainly would not want ever to see that again. It is a crying shame that in a country like Kenya, which where the people are so wonderful, the that they allowed themselves to be sucked into a, a, this kind of, of violence. And I find that it is it is not what we want to see in, in, in our country. And I hope and I pray that it, it will never happen again. Would you like to explain what happened to you? Um, because, OK, it's a conversation. Let me uh, be truthful in saying that um, given my uh, relatively um, uh, privileged position in our society, the idea was to sort of uh, go into a bunker, not leave one's home, uh, watch the news to watch unfolding events, uh, but go nowhere until it all died down. There's a mm. follow-up question to this, as you can well imagine. But I'm asking you, what did you, how did you live through 2007? Well, of course, the bunker thing applies to the August 1982 attempted coup, because that's what we did then. But in 2000, and during the post-election violence, we were actually not at home because it was New Year. Uh, Christmas New Year holidays and we had gone um, my family and I had gone to the coast so for us it was not so terrible because we just stayed there so we extended our holiday um, we couldn't get back because there was no, not enough fuel on on the way you know I mean from Malindi to Nairobi it's a long journey and there wasn't enough fuel we were told that there wouldn't be fuel on the road so we decided that it would be better to, uh, to to stay put but I think we came home after a couple of days and then we just heard the stories that were going on once again we bunkered down and I think we just heard the stories and some of them were pretty frightful um, one of the worst affected areas was Eldoret and that's a place that's close to my heart because I, I studied there as a girl so I was very sad that that there was such that it took a lot of the it got the brunt of the uh, of the violence we have to take a break a quick one Madam, I set you up as being a, a repository of historical memory going, I wasn't sort of saying that, you know, you're like some biblical character who's 999 years old, <laughs> but um, perhaps you, uh, the furthest we had of the memory of our interviewees amongst one ancient was seem, seemed to be like 1982. You took us back to the Norfolk now, I want you to go back in time because we always accuse ourselves of knowing little about our past history. How far back can you go to moments of upheaval? Could you do Mau Mau, for instance? Just the fringes. I came to Kenya when the Mau Mau was in its last throes, if you like. And I do remember being 
mildly affected by it. We used to go to school on the train and the colonial government, as it was then, provided a police escort with dogs for the young people who were travelling up to Eldoret and Nairobi from Kampala and from Mombasa to ensure their safety because it was a time when there were there were schools for different races and so there was lots of children european children in these trains and obviously they may they might have been a, a target so we were we were protected by police and uh, i remember the alsatian dogs the german shepherd dogs that used to patrol the trains i didn't have any personal experience of it but when we first arrived in the country with my parents and my siblings we came up from Mombasa to Kampala and it should have been I think a 24-hour journey I was very little then so I don't remember exactly but we we were stopped in Voi because there was Mau Mau activity in the area so we had to sit in Voi for 12 hours and my mother tells the story of my father sitting on the edge of his bunk in the train with his head in his hand saying oh my goodness what have I done I've brought my my mother, my wife and my young children to this country and have I put them in danger but obviously we we lived to tell the tale so we are it, 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 we were fine do the words political assassinations in Kenya mean anything to you oh yes which ones I remember J.M. Kariuki I remember Robert Ouko um those are the two that spring to mind immediately well, elaborate for our younger listeners. Um, Go for J.M. Kariuki first. What was all that about, in your, to your understanding? Well, to be honest, I don't really remember. It's such a long time ago, but I do, remem- I do remember that he was, he was murdered and it was a source of great uh, sorrow and it sparked student riots. And we worked, my husband worked in the centre of town very near to the university so we actually had to again barricade ourselves inside the shop because uh, the students were were rampaging across Juvanji Gardens and throwing stones and rocks and breaking the windows of of the various uh, shops in, in the area and offices so that was quite uh, unpleasant um, I remember the, the, the Robert Ouko went missing for a long time and finally they found his body at the foot of a cliff um, but uh, beyond that, I don't really remember very much about it. Well, we're going back on this theme of uh, maybe violence, destruction, and upheaval is something to avoid. So um, I'm going to indulge you, move up the ladder so that um, your youngsters who don't know about these things might dare to look them up. Nowadays, one can Google things for want of so... There are two names to Google. What else can you remember? Mm, um, I remember when multi-party started. Mm. Well, when the when the movement nineteen ninety-two when the what? movement started. Right. And up until then, we'd had only one party, and there were those who felt that this was not democratic, so they decided they would try and start their own parties. And there was one particular politician whom I knew a little who was treated very badly, shall we say. And um, 
I don't know if I want to name him or not. No, I don't. That's not the, that's not was, our show. Um, Let other people's name names. We're talking was, uh, ideas. But he was, yeah, mm. he, he stood up for his what he believed in, and he suffered as a consequence, and he suffered very badly. And um, it, I, f- I feel that this is not the way to go about things. The the people who are in power should not be afraid that somebody who speaks out against what they believe is a is a threat hmm. they should we, we according to the constitution and i heard listened to your program last week and according to what you said we have freedom of speech in this country according to the constitution and so i believe that we should really have freedom of speech we shouldn't be afraid to say what we think and what we believe and for somebody to be tortured and taken away and murdered because they have had the temerity to speak out is is not the ideal for uh, a democratic country which wants to be thought to be in the 21st century. Well, you're suggesting there, I mean, we've got to give ourselves uh, the self-flagellations that can go on forever, but we have moved forward from the idea of people sort of queuing behind the supposed um, choice uh, with some sort of um, imposition on them. We've left queue voting. Uh, Would you say now in 2022 that we're gearing up for elections where there's really no scope for the abuse of the democratic process? Or do you think that there's they can still be manipulated despite our gizmos, but despite um, everything that's been put in place to make sure that one man, one vote, one woman, one vote actually works. One person, one vote. Yes. I'm, a, I'm afraid that it is very possible because it, it has happened in countries other than ours. And it is well known that it has happened in countries other than ours, which are allegedly more sophisticated more democratic and there is always scope for manipulation there is always scope for uh for for fraud fraud if you like but if the if the uh things have been put in place to to stop that or to prevent it one hopes that they can work but i don't believe that they can work 100% because they don't work 100% anywhere Oh, is that a terrible admission that um, uh, democracy doesn't actually work? We've been no, following think, the think, wrong religion. I, no, I think I think democracy Ooh. democracy works, yeah. but it can be it can be uh, uh, manipulated, well, um, yeah. and it's like everything can be manipulated. So, I I want you to say comment. I'm asking for comments. Ah, uh, is the level of politician that is has evolved? in the Kenya that you know, are we getting better or worse or more of the same in terms of leadership? I'm afraid it's more of the same. If you look at the, uh, if you read the news, the same old names keep cropping up over and over and over again. And one wonders, where are the young people? Where are the, where are the, uh, the, the, the new minds, the new ideas? Where are they coming from? Because we don't seem to have an awful lot of them. There may be one or two lurking in the in the background that I don't know about. But whenever I read an article about 
current politics, I seem to see the same old names that I've been seeing for the last 20 or more years. And I find that very sad. I really do find it very sad. An unfair question uh, to you, and that is that this is home, and we're going to do the reveal later, but we're keeping it under wraps for now. Do you think that over the years we have been a more inclusive society? So we're going to take out the two words, race, that's colour, the Martin Luther King thing, I want my children to be able to, etc., etc., and then tribe, ethnicity, uh, whichever you wish to go with first, terms of progression, tribalism and racism. Have we moved forward, you're Mm. asking? Yes. That's a loaded question, John. Um, I wonder, because in the 50, nearly 50 years I have lived in Kenya as an adult, I think there is a large proportion of Asian and a smaller but significant proportion of European background people living and yet the number of those people who are who are who have their representative in Parliament is negligible so I just wonder if it's because they don't care so they don't put themselves forward or is it because they are afraid to put themselves forward? Or if they just think, well, there's no point in me putting myself forward because I won't get elected anyway. Okay. Well, that's. Uh, I was hoping for a bit of um, optimism from your responses and comments, and I'm not getting it. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we have we have had, famously, we had uh, one gentleman who was very, or one family who were quite um prominent in on the political scene and there have been some Asians as well who have put themselves in and done well I think but I think maybe there is an apathy in those in the community which doesn't uh, I'm sorry I'm still not being very optimistic my son tells me I'm negative maybe I should try and be more positive but on this in in this instance I um, I'm afraid I don't see it really that we've come forward tribalism I think now there are a lot of your your young man last week in his in his talk he said that um, he comes from a, a sort of mixed family and he was brought born in one place and brought up in another and I think that possibly the events of 2007 did open people's eyes to the fact that we are this is a this is Kenya this is not Maasai land or Kikuyu land or Luo land it is Kenya and we should all be Kenyan together so I hope that that is among the young people that is going to be uh, something that we see progress going forward that's an optimistic note we'll stop there for a while Madam, uh, I'll give you another quote that Kenyans only 
seem to come together when one of our athletes sort of or many of our athletes win the gold silver bronze and are in fourth fifth and sixth position or our rugby team does well in the hong kong sevens but that aside we do not see ourselves as a nation and that this carries through this idea of national cohesion goes into politics where it's very easy to divide the country into little segments and play a little if we have this segment aligned to that segment then we if our man or woman will lead and that's what sort of triggers all the violence because some people think you know half of us are not represented now again people have noted your accent uh, clever as they are uh, what do you think about this having you've said 50 years I've been in this country what do you think about that as a as a as a person who belongs to this country that we're not a nation you mean mm. I think we are. Well, I, I, I did give you an image where there are things that do yes, surround there are us. That uh, I think there's one name we can name. Um, when Eliud Kipchoge runs the marathon in under, you know, I think everybody who had an instrument that could see that saw those miraculous um, two hours. But they're few and far between. Yeah. And, they, and they relate mostly to, to, to sport. To sport, yes. I and, I, and I'm looking again to the elections because that's yeah. our, our chat. Mm. Because are we going to be riven yet again by, quote-unquote, tribal alliances as opposed to uh, ideological alliances, the nation we want? The ideology of many of the people who stand for office doesn't seem to me to be very strong and I fear that there are still many people who have the vote who will f not con not look at the country as a country they'll look at their little portion of the country and I find it I've, wa I've wondered for some time why the country was divided into smaller and smaller pieces in terms right. of government. Right, the whole idea um, of devolution. Yes, because... And the threat that there could be more um, bits and pieces still? I, I don't... Yeah, I, I, I understand that, but I don't think it's uh, probably the best idea. But then I'm not in government, so maybe they find it easier to cope with smaller smaller units, if you like. I I really can't in all honesty, answer the question that you're asking whether we are a nation or not because it's... I don't know enough about the people outside of the place where I live. Right, so are you, madam, describing yourself, and there, and there are lots of them in my, in my family and amongst my friends, who say that they're not interested in politics? Absolutely. I'm, I'm really an apolitical animal. Well, I, I will. It, it's unfair. You know, the trouble, the trouble with these sort of live shows is that poor you, you've got no idea what I'm going to ask you next. Uh, I guess that's why politicians always say we have a list of the 10 questions. 
Uh, that's why we're not doing that kind of show. So I'm, 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 I'm going to ask you now, how dare you say that you're apolitical when you're part of what politicians do? It's going to affect you directly. Would you say that of, of your own family as a mom, as a grandma? I'm not interested in what happens in this family. No, I find, I find that no. a, a terrible. Well, sorry to be judgmental, but I. I but do do <laughs> you comment? are perfectly welcome to be judgmental. I. I think when I say I'm I'm apolitical, I don't follow any particular. In this country, I don't follow any particular group or or political uh, leader or aspirant. I believe in the Constitution and I wish that it could be followed the way the people who wrote it want it to be followed. Right, so I'm going to stick in a question there. Again, I've put it to my family and friends, rather like all the great religious tracts that we know, the Bible, the Gita, the Quran, have you read the Constitution from cover to cover? No, I haven't, and I haven't read the Bible from cover to cover either, John. So Right, so which bits of it do you believe in? Well, the, the bits that we were looking at today right. about the, the rights of, of Wanainchi to mm. to uh, pre, to education, to health care, to uh, safety and security, to all those things that we should be able to take for granted almost, but people in this country cannot. Right. Well, you know... the. the the awful thing, madam, is that when you look at... I'm glad you said world politics because if you if you look at other countries now and, again, let them remain nameless, but, you know, all the sort of, you know, the word party gate um, sort of emanating from our so-called colonial masters, it seems to me yeah. that um, politicians everywhere take the masses for a ride. Oh, absolutely. Mm. I, I, I look around the world mm. and... Apart from the gentleman who is currently defending his country to the hilt, I don't see a single real Churchillian-type statesman. We have politicians, we have leaders, but we don't at the moment, and we haven't had for a long time, statesmen, people to whom we can look up and say he is completely, he has complete integrity. And even Churchill actually didn't have complete integrity. But I hope there's nobody out there who's going to shoot me for saying that. Um, yeah, I, well, I, we'll get you I a bulletproof vest on your exit <laughs> I don't, from here. Uh, don't I don't, worry. I don't think that. I think at the moment there is a dearth of politicians who, in all over the world, right, who are who can be trusted. Right, but this is a this sets out to be a, a Kenya-focused program, and we are heading towards elections. And we've just said, I'm apolitical. These things are all too much. So what if we multiplied and had the f 50 million odd Kenyans? What if we multiplied people who think like you and uh, they came to 40 million? Why have elections if everybody thinks that there's no merit in them and they, they're not worried about no, politics. No, why, why, why have leaders? I don't think, I don't think, I don't believe that there is no merit in, in elections. Absolutely not. I believe that, that I, I, you know, in, in Australia, it is, a, it is a, a, not only your civic duty, but it is your, your legal obligation 
to vote. Yes, I'm aware of that. And I believe that that should be the case in all countries. That if you have the vote, unfortunately I do not have a vote anywhere, but if I had a vote I would exercise it. That I do believe in. I believe that it is the the civic duty of every citizen who has the opportunity to vote. Right. So I'm going to ask, Madam, how do you keep abreast of what is happening politically in this country? Or not at all? You just go and do the shopping, come back. I have to confess, John, that I, I don't really consciously keep abreast. But I listen to my the people who work for me my, my, my in, in my home, and like you, I occasionally take an Uber and I listen to I talk to the driver, and I find it very interesting what they have to tell me. Uh, different views, different aspirations, different re- requirements, and uh, that is how I keep abreast of what is going on. Let's go back to those voices of the Wananchi that with which we began, where you had people sort of talking about uh, the high cost of living, uh, being unable to buy food. Again, apolitical as you are, uh, and assuming that they're people who are about to vote, how would you encourage the person you want to lead this country to lead us towards food security, for example? that other countries around us, dare I say it, are somewhat doing better than Kenya in assuring. We have a drought even as we speak. I know we have a drought, but many years ago, I read an article in one of the local newspapers, which which has remained with me for, for a, up until now. And it was about a project that had been set up in somewhere in the north of Kenya, and I can't remember exactly where it was, but it was a village where an NGO had had set up an irrigation scheme. Now, you asked me about food security. They had set up an irrigation scheme, and the people of that village were able to grow, and it was a quite a drought-prone area. They were able to grow sufficient vegetables, not only for themselves, but also for their neighbours in the neighbouring villages. So they not only fed themselves, they fed their neighbours and they made money. And it occurred to me then, and it has occurred to me many times since, why does the government of Kenya not implement simple irrigation schemes so that we can be food sufficient and grow our own food, even if a lot of our country is prone to drought? But I'm going to ask you, well, you can't answer this question because the politicians are on the trail making promises, electoral promises, to the would-be voter. It seems to me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to urge you to adopt a new religion in the next 15 minutes, and that is to take some interest in what's going on. Because I, I haven't heard any aspirant suggest a solution to the problem of food security. I haven't heard any politician talk about how they might address the idea of land, which has always remained with us in your historical memory, Mm -hmm. all the way from colonial days, the handing over of, of plots of land, the relocation of people because there was overpopulation. We have repercussions of that to this very day. Mm -hmm. 
But, and I'm trying to link it to the notion of nationhood, these issues are still festering like a wound but haven't been addressed directly. Isn't this a recipe for further political disaster? Yes. Yeah, it probably is, yeah. Because where people are translocated, if you like, from where they where they feel they belong to where they feel they don't belong, they're not going to be happy, are they? You don't want to move from your home to somewhere you don't want to be an internally displaced person or a refugee. But then you could say that this has always been whatever land, Jubu Jubu land or Chiki Chiki land, and I'm a Buju Buju and you're a Chiki Chiki. <laughs> we're not uh, we're not being too too national here because if you look at quote unquote out there, in the, uh, an American has every right to travel all the way from California uh, and set up in Florida with a sort of ten ton truck with all his belongings. And people can do that in the United States of America, I believe. I've never lived in the States for any length of time. But isn't that, again, we should have achieved maybe in 60 years where we can move about and feel that as citizens we can live anywhere? Yes, but, but voluntarily. What I was saying was that mm. if people were moved against their will, then that's a different matter. If you want, if if you if you live in in Nyeri and you decide you want to go and live in Kajiadi, you should have the right to do so. For whatever reason, if you've bought land or you want to farm or whatever, but uh, uh, to to be forced out of your home and as as people were in two thousand seven two thousand and eight, we we don't want to see that again. I'd like you to make one more, uh, maybe my thinking is a bit discordant, do forgive me. Let's go back to the Vox Pops that had to do with political violence. This idea of 2007, 1992, moments in our history where people uh, did nasty things to each other and to each other's property. I'd like you to comment on whether you think there is a solution to that in the Kenya that you've known over 50 years plus? Because again, if it's an unfair question, we'll leave it at that and in a way expect it to happen again. That's a sort of hook to that question. I can, we can only hope that people have can learn the lessons of history. But you know, madam, that the, the, the idea has always been that we will learn from the past. There's a great sort of um, narrative out there saying Kenyans would never, ever relive 2007, for example. Yes. But we've seen in world history, again, yes. we only have to look to, okay, we can talk about Ukraine. Uh, we've only seen history uh, replaying itself in ways that we'd never thought imaginable. That we not only never thought imaginable, but never wanted ever in our lives to, to see again. I mm. mean, probably, actually, you and I mm. haven't seen it because we were both born after World War II, right. just. Yes. But, but the idea that those atrocities are being perpetrated again in the 21st century is just horrendous. And do you think and that we Kenyans will never repeat 2007 because, again, we've learned our lesson? I can't say that. I don't. I, it's very possible that Kenyans are better than the rest of the world, and they think they they have learned a lesson. I hope so. But um, looking at what's going on in the larger world, 
people have very short memories. I'm going to end this particular segment by reading from our beloved Constitution, Article 29 in the Bill of Rights, and it says that every person has the right to freedom and security of the person, which includes the right not to be, and I'm going to quote from C, subjected to any form of violence from either public or private sources, and F, treated or punished in a cruel, inhuman or degrading manner. So let's hope for that, and we'll take a break. Madam, I know, but our listeners listeners don't know. Um, who are you? I am Claire Jetois. I was born in the UK in the north of England. Shortly after the end of World War Two, I came to East Africa as a small child in 1955. I actually set foot on Kenyan soil for the first time on February the 4th, 1955. I was with my parents, uh, my older sister and my two younger brothers. And as I mentioned earlier, we were on our way to Uganda. My father was a teacher and he had been employed by the British government to train teachers in Uganda. So he did that for 16 years, first in the bush in a place called Busubizi. And then he moved to Kiambogo, which is near Kampala. And then he moved to the Institute of Education at Makerere. So we were living in the bush for eight years, uh, 50 miles from Kampala. And there was no school for me and my sister. So we were sent to Loretta Convent in Eldoret, which is why I mentioned earlier that I have a, a love for that town although I didn't see it for about 52 years. Once I left, I didn't go back until 2013. But uh, that was just happenstance. And I studied here, then I studied in England for a while. I was I did my senior tertiary education in England and France. And I worked in England for about three, four years. And my last job, was with the Institute of Development Studies in the University of Sussex and they sent me here to do a job where I was working in conjunction with the Institute of Development Studies in the Nairobi University. And the day after I got here, I met my husband, who was introduced to me by a colleague from IDS Nairobi, and we were married in 1974 and I came here to live in November of 74. I have we had three sons, uh, two of whom live in this country. Uh, one of them is married and has two children, and we live together. And the other one lives on his own, but we see a lot of him. And my third son lives in England with his wife and four children. And, uh, yeah, I have loved, I love living in Kenya. I can't imagine living anywhere else. 
it is it is home. I've been here for 48 years, almost. And if you count the 20 years between me arriving here and coming back as a bride, if you like, I suppose I've lived here all but seven years of my life. I'd like so to ask, I, I, I had somebody like you deliberately come on to um, this program to be a representative of what, if you accept that term, the Kenyan expat. And I will ask, because you've said you don't vote, what is the explanation for having lived here for all these years but never taken up citizenship? Well, up until very recently, it wasn't. It, I didn't have the option to become a citizen. But when they changed the constitution, anybody who had been married to a Kenya citizen, which my husband obviously was, for more than seven years would be eligible. However, there is a, a monetary aspect to this. I am not a wealthy woman and it is quite expensive to take out Kenyan citizenship. Um, but I have applied for permanent residency. Unfortunately, um, the application has been in the ministry for a very long time and I don't know what's happened to it but also I have never really wanted not to be British which sounds really strange but but okay let's let's um, get if, if I may um, when you when you are laid to rest uh, to speak euphemistically Will it be, you know, in the green hills of Kent or Shropshire? Oh, or, God, no. Or will it be in, in, in Kenya? Well, I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the next few years. I, I will be laid to rest wherever I, wherever I uh, turn up my toes. But um, if, I, if I die in Kenya, I shall be buried in Kenya or cremated in Kenya. And if I die in the UK, which may happen, I mean, I go there quite a lot. Uh, yeah. All right. Okay. No. No. No more talk of death. Let's uh, let's <laughs> abandon that topic for a while. But I'm interested in Jetwa, because obviously that's a, a South Asian name. And in 1974, true love led you to marry uh, a Muhindi for us. Yes. Now, did you experience a sort of Sydney Poitier guests who's coming to dinner kind of, or were you welcomed with open arms with your would-be in-laws and your husband, vice versa. What was it like to have a mixed-race marriage in 1974? If you would, I mean, in you don't have to comment. No, no, I'm quite happy to talk about it. In our case, he, ours was not the first in his family. His sister and one of his brothers, one of his sisters and one of his brothers were both married, one to, the, one to a German and one to uh, an Englishman. So I was not the f and one of his nephews also was married to an English girl. So no, I was not the first non-Indian to marry into that family. The the how should I put it? The, the reason they they didn't like me very much. I don't think, um, but I think they thought I was after his money, which actually he didn't have very much of, <laughs> um, and. And also, I I was a graduate. They assumed that they, they assumed, they assumed that, that, that I was after the family, you know, yeah, the yeah. family jewels or whatever. Yes. Um, I, I was a graduate, and he was, 
he left school after O levels. So one of his brothers said, uh, remarked that he couldn't understand why this this intelligent girl wanted to marry this idiot. But actually, that was a terribly unfair thing to say because he was a very intelligent man. He just wasn't academic. And and I dare say, Claire, um, in those days, uh, there's also the idea of political correctness. Um, it's not. It's rather untoward to address people as idiots in this day and age, for whatever reason. <laughs> well, I don't think he actually called him an idiot, but <laughs> he close. certainly wasn't very impressed with his brother's lack of education. What he mm. what he perceived as his brother's mm. lack of education. Mm. Um, so, but we, 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 as far as my family were concerned, they thought that my husband was the best thing since sliced bread because he was the only person, my father once remarked that he was the only person who could keep me under control. So right. <laughs> I'm uh, a very yeah, strong yeah. person. Let, let, me, let me draw you on this idea because you have mixed race. We have now mixed ethnicity. Uh, the idea of whatever it has to take to infiltrate another culture how did you sort of, you know, um, sorry to, were you, were you sort of making your samosas and your chapatis on day two and making sure that you learnt all your spices? How did you infiltrate that thing to become acceptable? Well, or, I, you, or you had no no visits from the in-laws whatsoever? No, 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 no. His, his, one of his brothers had died a couple of years before and his widow was very good to me. And she, she taught me all the cooking. Yes. And I took to wearing a sari like a duck to water because it was it's a great thing it's a beautiful uh piece of well a beautiful garment yes religion and spirituality your religion, children the raising of the children yeah. and what path is food to be i taken. learned from that lady yes um i was born and raised a catholic and obviously my husband was a hindu we were married in the catholic church but when it came to uh the children, they were baptised, but I never took it further than that because he was not very keen. So, In terms you know, of gender, who was, who was making the biggest uh, abandoning the most? Did you as a woman feel that, you know, you had to lose 90% of yourself in order no, to mix no, in? No, no, or no, was no, it a 50-50 no, no. split? No, no. Uh, again, his family had always been quite western in 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 many ways they were they were they were i mean his his older brother the one who had died had had taught him a lot about western culture because he was very interested in it and he read a lot and so he knew about western culture and as i said he had a sister-in-law and a brother-in-law and a niece-in-law who were who were english or european um, I know. I know that um, in the your your husband was a, a business person. I want you to comment on this idea of being an employer, and the idea that we in Kenya don't have sort of like rigid rules of um, pay. So uh, I'm sure you say you were good employers and you employed lots of people. What guided your thinking on what you ought to pay them and what were their rights and privileges? Uh, we there, there has always been. Um, guidance for business people or for any employer in this country about minimum wages so we always followed which are minimal which are minimal yes but we always made sure that we we didn't only pay minimum wages and we always um ensured that our staff were well looked after in my father-in-law's day the staff were all fed twice a day um when he was running the business but then when when we we, we had one gentleman who worked for us and actually died of cancer while we were while he was employed by us and my husband 
looked after him, used to take him food in the hospital and I used to make, he couldn't eat so I used to make soup for him and he would take it to him in the hospital. So I think we were, we were caring employers as well as, you know, following the law. Okay, I'd like us to end because we have to. Um, yes. um, uh, I would like you to, to think back to our central uh, topic, the elections. Now that we've been going down uh, memory lane, and, and, and thank you so very much for uh, sharing and uh, self-revelation is a difficult thing for most of us. I'd like you to, what should we remember as we go into the elections on August the 9th? What's the central message? Be a bit sort of proselytized for a wee bit. Well, I, I would like, the majority of the people who are going to vote are quite young, are they not? And Indeed. many of them will not have voted before. Mm. I, I prepared a little sentence in Kiswahili. Ah, so oh gosh. I would like to say to them, Kupiga kura ni forsa, ni haki yako, na wajibu yako. Oh my gosh, yeah. So. It is your right and it is your obligation. I am a firm believer that it is your civic duty to vote. But when you go to vote, don't look for the guy who's promising you the earth. Look for the guy who is going to work to help you get the earth. Thank you very much, Claire Detois. And for you, our listeners, I hope you enjoyed our conversation and that you'll be back again to listen to John Sibiokumu on Wednesday. Bye for now.